Britannica is thrilled to introduce Launchpack's GCSE, winner of the Bet Award 2021 for Best Classroom Aid for Learning, Teaching and Assessment. We know that engaging students can be hard at the best of times. Launchpacks provides a seamless experience for GCSE students to build subject area knowledge, think critically and make cross-curricular connections that help them engage in meaningful learning. Let us prove this to you by giving you a free trial access, plus all GA teachers get 10% off. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy this next JogPod with John. Hello there, and welcome to another JogPod. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Amber Murray, Associate Professor in Human Geography, Fellow and Tutor at Mansfield College, Oxford. Welcome to JogPod, Amber. Hi, John. It's a great pleasure to be here, and thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, well, I'm really excited about what we're talking about today, uh, and I'm sure our listeners will be as we go through this. It's, it's challenged me to think in an entirely different way. You joined the School of Geography and, and Environment in September 2018, but you've had some interesting academic positions previously. You're at American University in Cairo, Clark University in Massachusetts, and the Jimmy University in Ethiopia. You're a, a decolonial political geographer, ethnographer and educator. And it'd be fair to say, isn't it, for, for the last decade, you've considered the connections between resource extraction, social change, and the links between knowledge and development in contemporary African societies. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, that's a, a wonderful introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and uh, yes, I, I have taught um, my first academic position following my PhD was um, at Jima University, which is um, in Ethiopia. Um, and, and I went from there to Clark, and then I went from Clark to the American University in Cairo, and then now have landed at the School of Geography and the Environment at Oxford. That's sort of geographer's dream, really going from flitting from continent to continent <laughs> and continuing to work. Well, it, it wasn't like... all preordained, but looking back now, I can see how valuable each one of those um, experiences were. I'd like to ask you first about the paper you wrote with Steve Puttick. This was in geography in autumn 2020. It was called Confronting the Deafening Silence on Race in Geography Education in England learning from anti-racist, decolonial and black geographies. Now, I, I have to admit, I, I started teaching in the 1970s and I, I wasn't even aware there was, a, there was an issue. I did a module of history at university and I did, I read geography. And I think I was just a very uncritical consumer. I, I hadn't realized the the depth of the issues that you've brought out in your paper. I think I, I did read The Silk Roads by Peter, Peter Frankopan recently, and, and that had a major impact on me. It, it forced me to think about history and geography in a different way. But your papers that I've read have, have done exactly the same. They forced me to think. And you talk about how we urgently need to address the silence on race by making substantive anti-racist changes in the curriculum. In, in fact, you wrote, geography education in England has a problem with race. Would you just explain why that is? 
Yeah, thanks very much. Um, it's really, it's fascinating to hear your perspective um, and also to think about the, um, really the echoes with, with, within um, the perspective that you have just shared and what our findings were in this paper. Um, so this was a collaborative article written by um, Steve Puttick, who is my colleague in um, the Department of Education at Oxford. And what we addressed was this real remarkable silence in school geography on topics related to race, racism and racialization. Um, and, and as part of the project, we surveyed a number of curricular resources. So those included the Department of Education's Key Stage 3 Geography Program, the GCSE subject content and the A-level subject content. What we found really surprised us, although we kind of went into this anticipating the numbers were going to be low, there were no appearances of race, racism or racialization in any of these national curricula, zero. Um, and then we went on to look at Teaching Geography, which is the Geographical Association's journal for secondary teachers. And uh, we, you know, then looked at the back catalog, which was from uh, 1975 to 2019. And we found that race is mentioned only in one article. Um, and what's quite curious about that one article is that it was authored by someone who identified as not a geographer. Uh, very clearly in the article and said, nonetheless, questions of race are relevant to geography teaching. So it was almost as if that one article looking at race, um, you know, kind of proved the, um, the, the rule. It was an exception that proved the rule that race and racialization do not feature in British geography curriculum. And so our argument then is that these omissions are a significant problem and that such a silence allows for forms of white normativity to persist and to sometimes even thrive um, within uh, British geography curriculum. And so they thrive under the auspices of, you know, being objective or neutral or normal. So these are all kind of, they're hidden um, and in, but yet embedded, they're omnipresent within um, the, the British uh, geography curriculum. On the plus side, I suppose, people are beginning to raise awareness of this. And I noticed there was an article in The Guardian. This was from March 2021. It stated that hundreds of schools in England have signed up to an anti-racist curriculum. I'm not sure they know what that is yet. That needs thinking through. But then, given that there are more than 24,000 schools, that's in England alone, then hundreds is still a drop in the ocean. So we need to unpick a little bit about what that looks like and, and, and why the study of race, perhaps, in particular. Yeah, I also saw this piece in The Guardian, and, um, and I agree with you that there's a lot of optimism right now um, around the potentials for something like a decolonized, a decanonized curriculum or an anti-racist uh, curriculum. Um, and, 
you know, this particular project um, is called the Diverse Curriculum, the Black Contribution. And so it is doing really important work in outlining some content for teachers that brings attention to stories and experiences of struggle and inequality, um, as well as empowerment by Black British people and builds upon and highlights work of um, Black artists and scientists. Um, so the, it's, it's really encouraging to see this um, momentum being sustained, um, but really kind of at the grassroots level, um, right? And, and so this, there is this, this, you know, this kind of will and intention for active and engaged anti-curriculum or anti-racist curriculum. Um, but there are significant challenges even to educators and teachers who have that kind of um, will and intent. Um, and, you know, and so in the wake of writing this article, Steve and I have uh, spoken with several teaching collectives about the prerogatives of anti-racist teaching. And um, those conversations have been really illuminating. Um, again, with, you know, with, with teachers and educators who um, are very sympathetic to the needs for anti-racist pedagogy, and yet they're talking about, you know, kind of decades of neoliberal policies and austerities, which means that teachers find themselves frequently overworked they're under-resourced, um, sometimes isolated and siloed. And so even cultivating conversations where teachers can learn from the experiences of other anti-racist uh, teachers and, and uh, who are using anti-racist pedagogies can be quite difficult. You know, and then within that, we also have this larger, very politicized context now with the backlash against critical race theory, which has uh, dangerously politicized conversations about educating students about the realities of, of uh, race and imperialism. So that again, you know, teachers are noting this anxiety to engage in conversations. There's a real will there, but a fear about a misstep. You know, what happens if I make a mistake and it gets identified and then picked up by the Daily Mail? Um, and, you know, and that's kind of the real reality now that, that teachers are, are facing. Um, but all of this is to say that, you know, because something is challenging doesn't mean that we turn away from it. But um, in, in this article and in these other collaborations that Steve and I are working on, we're thinking about how, yes, there's a, a resurgence and a momentum around anti-racist pedagogies now, but these projects are really decades old. And so some of the scaffolding is already there. We can look at, um, you know, kind of pedagogies of hope looking at the work of bell hooks. We can look at pedagogies of discomfort. Um, this is Barbara Applebaum's work on the need to understand educational processes in which we kind of stay with discomfort rather than turning away from discomfort. And, and so then again, you know, another thing is, is to think about 
how in our ambitions to actualize anti-racist teaching praxis, um, we do it in a sustained way that's more than a kind of add diversity and stir because that's, you know, kind of the earlier multicultural projects of, of the 1990s, which, you know, haven't led to sustained racial justice or a transformation of uh, racial inequalities. There's several levels to this, isn't there, really? Because as a teacher, I pick up on that. And I think I must do something here. But then we've got as you talked about, the exam boards with the specifications that I have to work to and the DFE with the key stage three that I have to work through. So it's, it's a several areas that need to be influenced to make that sort of change, to make life easier for teachers who sometimes might be working within multi-academy trust where their lessons are to some extent given to them by the, by the trust that they're created at that level. Precisely. And, and I think, um, you know, one of my hopes for these conversations moving forward is to really rethink formative assessments and what potentials there might be there to um, have a critical conversation on, you know, how we examine pupils. And, you know, what are, if we're committed to even critical thinking, um, there are inherent limitations to how students presently are examined. Um, and it, it does, as you say, it also constrains the teacher to kind of teach in some ways to the exam because the teacher is of course motivated also for, um, you know, to see the students um, succeed and the terms of success are set by the exam. And this is a complex issue. So we're opening up things for students where the teacher begins to lose some direct control over how well they'll do in the exam because the issues are complex. The student addressing these will have a complexity that's making them thinking very difficult under difficult conditions in difficult areas, it's hard to then say this is going to be, we're going to make this an essay on the exam yep. and work out how to mark it properly. Precisely, yeah. And there's a kind of binary um, that is almost written into or standardized within um, the, the kind of exam rubric where things are simplified and framed as you understand the strengths of a phenomenon and then you understand the weaknesses of the phenomenon. And when you're talking about um, violent historical processes and, and practices like the transatlantic slave trade, for example, that kind of simplistic and binary um, framing of let's talk about the strengths of, you know, British colonialism or something is, you know, then very clearly part of the, the problem that we're trying to address. One of the things I picked up that you wrote was you said, avoiding race makes whiteness invisible. And the silence in English school geography education on race is deafening. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think to understand this um, concretely, 
many of the listeners, I'm sure, will have encountered someone in their lives who has claimed that they don't see race or for whom acknowledging racial difference is tantamount to being themselves racist. Um, and, you know, perhaps the, the person or, or these people were genuinely motivated to imagine a post-racial future. But what making this statement does is to first avoid the very real material and structural inequalities produced and maintained within racialized societies, right? And, and so those material things which impact and shape things like life expectancy, um, educational attainment and more, um, while also dangerously then positing that the people who do speak about and acknowledge race are themselves racist. And this is also part of the kind of dog whistling around um, critical race theory. Um, but so in, in this article that, you know, that Steve and I wrote, we're drawing from a body of scholarship which has outlined the imperatives of anti-racist pedagogy, um, and including geography, and has long critiqued normative whiteness within geography. And by whiteness here, I'm drawing on the scholarship of W.E.B. Du Bois, Noel Ignatiev um, and others who are talking about whiteness as a racial category and a system of racial entitlement that necessarily relies on the marginalization of people who are racialized as non-white. So within white dominant and racializing societies and places, whiteness is taken as the unstated but effective norm. So it masquerades as the normal, as the objective, as the unbiased, and as the universal perspective. So our argument is that failing to address race also preserves the normative power of whiteness um, in, in geography and beyond geography. Geography and history intertwined with all of this. So whenever you talk about geography, and I, I don't want to stray onto history, but it, it just, it does involve geographical history or historical geography, if you want to put it that way. Um, and the, the, two are, the two are just interconnected so much. Precisely, yeah. And um, uh, again, um, Steve and I recently spoke to um, perhaps a more uh, kind of transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary um, group of educators. And that was one of the topics that we addressed in the Q&A was the need for better cross-fertilization amongst teachers of other subjects. So kind of, you know, can we think creatively about how we sequence, you know, what is taught in certain disciplines and when, um, uh, you know, as a way to really, you know, foster the, the connections for the students from the perspective of, of the students. Um, but certainly, historical geography is tremendously important. And while Steve and I, in this piece, we're looking at race and racialization, we're also really looking at 
um, colonialism and, and British imperialism. And there's a, um, a very well developed and critical body of scholarship that is identifying the silences in British geography curriculum around British imperialism. So these things are intersecting. The other thing that I thought was interesting was that the, you use the distinction made in Jung's work, uh, his conceptualization between powerful knowledge and knowledge of the powerful. And then you go on to analyze some, what you termed absent knowledges. Right, so in the article, we're trying to work our argument for anti-racist and decolonial criticism curriculum um, into a more mainstream conversation around cultural literacy and powerful knowledge. Um, and we've done this kind of strategically as both of which are relatively well received by leading decision makers. Um, and given the limitations of both, we're also recognizing the potential dangers in making this set of arguments, right? We kind of did this knowingly, but for Steve in particular, um, I think this was a kind of necessary evil. Um, so I might have mentioned that part of what is unique about our collaboration is that we're bringing together practitioner's knowledge and current academic debate. So Steve is a qualified geography teacher and was previously the head of department at a secondary school. I mean, he's now leading the geography PGCE program at Oxford's Department of Education. Um, and so uh, again, thinking about this, the particular political context in which the article emerges, um, we wanted to play around and to show that an anti-racist curriculum is necessary even for relatively mainstream educational agendas. And so working within powerful knowledge, we're arguing that black and decolonial geographies already bring attention to knowledge creation and the great potential that exists to learn from anti-racist conversations. Um, and we're, yes, we're, so we're making this distinction between um, power or we're drawing from this distinction between powerful knowledge and knowledge of the powerful as a way to kind of further our attention to the gaps between some of the aspirations of powerful knowledge, which are demanding attention to the power and epistemic kind of relations of knowledge, and then knowledge of the powerful. And, and then that is of course the tendency for hegemonic knowledges and perspectives to persist. And an interesting um, example that we found of this kind of dis, you know, apparent gap um, between these two was the expert panel of the English National Curriculum Review. And so in this document, powerful knowledge is described as a quote, fundamental educational consideration by the panel. And yet the report's four aims of education are striking for their inward lookingness and also because they seem to reproduce knowledge of the powerful, 
right? So they have this ambition and yet they're, you know, reproducing um, this knowledge. So for example, the second aim is to quote, appreciate the national cultures, traditions and values of England and the other nations within the UK, whilst recognizing diversity and encouraging responsible citizenship, end quote. So our argument is that, but <laughs> nationalist myths about an essentialized England cannot be discussed or analyzed without an attention to the geographies of race, including socio-spatial racial differences, and also without a conversation on the relationship between Englishness and whiteness. Um, and, and so then we're also, you know, further unpacking this particular quote where we're noting the clause whilst recognizing, for example, um, which is introducing a distinction between these diverse others and this homogenous England. Um, and then finally, we're noting the contrast in verbs. So we see that there's a need to, quote, appreciate national cultures while really while merely quote recognizing other nations so there's an inferred hierarchy between um, the kind of the attention that is given to these and you know for Steve and I were arguing that these content preferences are exposing the persistence of racializing and white dominant ideas um, within the current uh, you know prioritizations as they are articulated. You also refer to um, to the cultural literacy, E.D. Hirsch's conceptualization. So th there are issues here between cultural literacy, which you've sort of talked us through a little bit there, and the core knowledge approach as well. What do we yeah. need to know? Yeah, so, I mean, again, we're trying to bridge apparent divides between anti-racist work and um, you know, the cultural literacy. And so we're arguing that anti-racist geographies provide powerful frameworks to address white supremacy and institutionalized racism. Um, so we start with a critique of some of the limitations within cultural literacy, which other scholars have done a far more kind of wide ranging and comprehensive um, critique than we have. Um, but one of the examples of, of our critiques is to look at um, the think tank Civitas, uh, which is the Institute for the Study of Civil Society. Um, they have uh, from 2014, their core knowledge curriculum. And so we're looking at um, th this document and one of the examples that we pull out and, and critique is their summary of the Victorian period. Um, and so they describe the Victorian period as one in which Queen Victoria, quote, presided over a period of British history that had seen huge economic growth, a process of social and political democratization and an extension of political influence worldwide, end quote. 
Um, so again, you know, kind of much like our previous example, we're looking at the use of euphemisms, um, the ways in which um, hierarchies are built within, um, you know, some of some of the descriptions. So this euphemism, the extension of political influence, of course, um, you know, we argue is a particularly sanitized description of British imperialism. Um, and, you know, I, I, to connect this back to something that we have said earlier, we do understand that, um, you know, teachers and educators are pressed for time, um, but also that in, in teaching um, summaries of content are sometimes unavoidable, right? Um, and that teaching sometimes necessarily involves uh, some level of simplification. Um, but what we are identifying here um, can be not only kind of content omissions, but sometimes even strategic omissions. Right, and so um, we're we're also raising the question of kind of the uh, the will um, uh, to change, and so in in making this argument, one of the things that we note is that the national curriculum. Um, in England for key stages one and two, for example, um, Asia and Africa, both the locations of former British colonies are omitted entirely. Um, and so, you know, thinking about the associations, you know, as well between imperialist uh, whitewashing of British geography and um, core knowledge though, don't need to be inevitable, right? And so we're we're saying that we understand these uh, the the critiques of um, some of the kind of simplistic framings of of core knowledge that have emerged, um, but that on its own terms, core knowledge supports a necessary engagement with race. Um, and, and, you know, so then we, we look in the article to at how students might understand things like housing inequalities without understanding geographies of race and racialization. Um, and, you know, and that this, the imperative within cultural liter literacy that young people need to be able to read or to understand media and to formulate their own critical thinking on these issues really inherently kind of actually lends itself to many of the arguments made for anti-racist uh, geographies. It's almost as if uncomfortable geography and uncomfortable history is either deliberately left out or, or unconsciously left out. I, I had much similar conversations at times with, with Tariq Jazeel and, and Pat Noxola when we were, we were discussing this. These things are just hidden by either, as I said, either deliberately or, or, um, or just entirely unintentionally through people having gone through a similar system and being equally uncritical until they're challenged. Yeah, I, I think this is... Um... <sighs> I think it's very complicated. Um, and so sometimes 
um, yes, there can be a certain level of naivete that goes into the perpetuation of, you know, kind of um, what scholars have called a white blind geography or geographers blindness to the whiteness of their discipline. Um, but um, there's also really interesting work um, coming out, um, you know, within geographies, at least within the last uh, kind of decade around agnotology, which is the active production of ignorance. Um, and, and to say that, um, you know, against the popular contention that ignorance is sustained because people, you know, just are unaware and unknowledgeable and therefore our response should be to make people aware, to help people come to a sense of awareness. And then the extension of that argument is that once people have an awareness, they would take an action upon that awareness. But really there are some flaws kind of in that thinking all the way through both the connection between knowledge and action, um, you know, which we see so prominently around um, you know, uh, why people with awareness of climate change nonetheless continue their daily patterns of activities, which, you know, kind of reproduce um, the, the very paradigms that they're aware of, critically aware of. Um, but so for, for agnotology, then there's also a political will to the production and the maintenance of systems of ignorance. And, you know, and so to think about how some of these omissions um, are, there is a political will to keep these things hidden. Um, and um, and so to, to think about ignorance, I think fundamentally difference as um, being something that is created out of um, systems of, of hierarchy and uh, unequal power relations. So it's too simple really to say that an understanding of geographies of race will enable students to become more aware global citizens. There's much going on in between the, the making them aware of the understanding of geographies of race and then and then hoping to develop them as 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 more aware global citizens. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the conversation around um, agnotology, of course, is you know looking at wider systems. Um, but if if we think about um, how an awareness within geography you know, if, if we're thinking about anti-racist geographies, it's, it's then, it's not merely an awareness of geographies of race, but it's really the kind of critical thinking capacity to understand the geopolitics of knowledge and to um, interrogate sets of beliefs um, that, you know, kind of transcends the classroom. I think if we talk about anything like how we are contributing to helping students become more aware global citizens, um, it's really kind of fostering um, the, the confidence and helping them develop their own tools as, you know, anti-racist geographers. 
Um, it, so it has to be beyond awareness. I think if it's about it, you know, both I've, haven't really kind of defined, I suppose, the the terms, um, but I, I've been discussing both anti-racist geographies and decolonial geographies. And while they are sympathetic kind of sister ambitions, they're important distinctions, but both of them, I think, are united by an interest and a commitment to move beyond critique. And so it's not just about the students having that critical thinking capacity, but for them to think creatively about imagining alternatives within their societies, within, you know, their communities um, that push back and, you know, might lead to um, different futures. There are some teachers who are picking up on this now. Uh, you write, the silence on race in English school geography stands in contrast to important strands of thought in the discipline at large. And there's much more work, isn't there, being done at an academic level compared to school, although there are, there are pioneers in, the, in schools. What lessons can be learned from the academic work? Because for, for, that's been going for the last several decades. So these pioneer teachers and the ones who follow, what are, what are the lessons that can be learned for them? Yes, I mean, in thinking about um, important uh, and emergent strands of thought within academic geographies, I think the two um, that emerge for me as particularly significant for this conversation would be um, black geographies as bringing attention to knowledge creation and intellectual perspectives of, of Black thinkers, and then also to highlighting the differently lived experiences of Black, um, Brown, Indigenous people, and emphasizing really the importance of pluralistic, multiple, nuanced, and complex rather than static or monolithic or uniform black senses of place. So that's the first black geographies. And then the second, which I've just mentioned um, is the conversations, the sets of conversations happening within decolonial thought. Um, decolonial thought and sometimes, um, you know, referred to as decolonial options. Um, and so decolonial scholarship um, is kind of dual, duly um, motivated, firstly, by the need to um, critique and to understand coloniality in the present, which is to say that um, the juridical decolonization of the 1950s and onwards um, did not bring about a fundamental break uh, from colonial uh, sets of relations, colonial um, economic relations, um, colonial political and social um, relations, but rather we have seen their persistence um, into the, the present period and um, decolonial scholars call this um, the coloniality of power. So it's shifting, but has been, um, has informed uh, 
global um, politics and experiences and knowledge since uh, 1492. Um, and then on the other hand, on the other side, the kind of second motivation um, is to, um, to think about um, and to articulate and to um, reveal decolonial options, which are ways of thinking about the world, ways of being in the world, modes of existence that are then beyond these colonial logics that have been configured by this colonial matrix of power. Um, and so again, really, you know, thinking it's an ambitious project, but there's a decolonial ethic, which is deeply humble um, and, and partial, but again, fundamentally about, um, you know, thinking through futures otherwise. On a positive note, I suppose, <laughs> the, the Geographic Association has been working for a while on, uh, on critical thinking, firstly with the DFE, Critical Thinking for Achievement, and now a, a project with the British Council on connecting classrooms to encourage students and teachers to think more critically and more deeply about the, the issues that are put in front of them. And, and you wrote, geography education might position itself at the forefront of innovative and critical skills building within 21st century media context, which is important because that's where we've got this, as you talk about it, a proliferation of, of fraudulent inter, uh, information. These sort of post-truth debates, this is, this is where increasingly to be an effective global citizen, you've got to have that criticality of, of understanding what's being fed to you to be able to make better judgments about whether it's truth or fake news. Yeah, it's um, also, again, um, inherently challenging, um, you know, ambition, I think. Um, so for a decolonial scholar, of course, truths are always multiple. But that being said, um, that does not mean, therefore, any statement is somehow true. And so you, when you're talking about these kind of plural epistemes or how there can be um, multiple forms of knowledge which ex exist simultaneously, right? That's the decolonial understanding of the pluriverse. It stands against the universe or this notion that there is one true somehow um, you know universe or that as scholars we are trying to to get to this kind of true especially for um, you know within the humanities and the social sciences that there's this nugget of like a human condition um, that that we're all trying to get at but no there are human conditions right um, and so it, it has to be about fostering the the critical awareness of um, power inequalities to think of to get students to think even just very 
you know, almost um, concretely about their social media feeds and who are the individuals that are tweeting, you know, where is this idea originating from? What is the kind of historical timeline of, of the idea? What, what happens if we extend the idea into the future? What are some of the potential dangers of, um, you know, of, of this idea? Um, and then, of course, you know, I mean, also thinking about things like evidence, what what evidence does, um, you know, whichever individual have to make this claim? Um, so, we, you know, I mean, we have many we have many tools already within geography that um, that we can cultivate within our students where they can think through you know, so, something that um, I teach here at Mansfield is Edward Said's work on imagined geographies, um, which is to show that these debates about what is true and what is imagined, that they're always deeply political um, and therefore the context is so important. Um, but, you know, they're the way that they manifest on social media is different, but Edward Said was talking about, um, you know, the so-called Orientalists, those, the scholars that would go into, um, you know, the quote Orient and um, diffuse ideas that were completely imagined, but those ideas got picked up in, popular fiction and they got reproduced within newspapers and then they you know were taught they were published as dissertations and then taught in schools and so these imagined geographies of the orient nonetheless became real in the way that they informed people's actions um, and so even just getting students to, you know, to think about um, other examples of the geopolitics of knowledge and their real um, urgencies um, for students to, to have the critical skills to evaluate things that come up on their, you know, Instagram feeds and their TikTok accounts. There be dragons, I suppose, and that sort of thing. <laughs> we can find all manner of bizarre creatures from somebody who's been on their wanderings. Uh, <laughs> the, one of the I have written about actually in my work on witchcraft. One of the fascinating things was was reading about the, the witchcraft. I we had a an exchange with a school in Zanzibar when I was teaching, and. Uh, we got a grant to produce um, a resource. It, it, uh, we put it onto a DVD that shows how old this was, but we were using 360 degree imagery and stories from people. And one of the teachers said to me, you can't produce this, this uh, account of what life is like on Zanzibar without talking about witchcraft. One of the other teachers had said, you can't do that, you can't do that. Uh, and he said, you must, because people will go to church, but then they'll also go to, to the witch doctor to make sure that the crops grow on their shamber. And as you talk, you've got two papers, haven't you, on the development of the Chad Cameroon oil pipeline, which was, if you read the top line, big corporations helping to promote economic development, respecting local knowledge and culture. That was the aim. That's not quite 
how it turned out, is it? Yeah, the the, the case of the Chad Cameroon oil pipeline is quite interesting um, because it emerged at a moment in time when um, kind of advocacy groups and um, even uh, international financial institutions like the World Bank um, were aware, mining corporations were aware of this, so, this phenomenon, the so-called resource curse. Um, which is to say that the idea that um, communities living in proximity to an abundance of natural resources would, you know, therefore have um, a level of economic development um, was actually incorrect. Um, and that um, pro the proximity for a community for an abundance of natural resources um, more often than not led to a decline in the community's well-being. Um, and so there, there was this awareness, um, this rising global awareness of, of, around the risks of oil extraction, particularly for communities in, in Latin America, um, Africa, and Asia. Um, and so the Chad Cameroon oil pipeline then um, was kind of drafted as this novel experiment in how oil could lead to development. And so ExxonMobil, uh, Chevron, um, you know, got together with the World Bank and tried to think about how they could design this pipeline to be the perfect pipeline. Something that really, you know, would not only not um, lead to a decline in various, uh, you know, measurements of well-being for local communities, but could enrich them. Um, immediately after the project was announced, you know, this is uh, the decade of the 1990s, um, a, a big um, transnational uh, group of different actors from civil society um, got together, some 250 organizations, and, um, you know, spoke out against the potential perils of this project. Um, both Chad and Cameroon um, were led, you know, had autocratic um, presidents who had patterned histories of repression against nonviolent um, dissenters. Um, Chad had just emerged from, Southern Chad had just emerged from a decade long, very bloody, um, very brutal civil war. And so even just contextually, um, this argument seemed deeply flawed. Um, and the way that the consortium was able to kind of manage this dissent and to kind of contain this dissent, one of the things that they did um, was to respond to the critique that extraction is too top down and that what we need is just greater and greater and more attention to the local context. Um, so they embarked upon kind of a number of um, different initiatives. Um, many of them kind of just 
superficial propaganda, if you will. So Exxon, for example, they filmed um, several different promotional films. Um, and when you look at the films, really they're deeply about the local, right? As this space where um, crucial intervention needs to take place. The narrator will frequently evoke this um, almost timeless um, mythology, really this colonial mythology about um, impoverishment in the local region. And so there's this kind of local anguish that is built into the promotional materials. The World Bank equally um, in their early promotional materials circulated online um, about the project repeatedly contextualized Chad as quote, one of the world's poorest countries. Every time Chad is mentioned, it is Chad, one of the world's poorest countries. And so there's this um, perpetual, you know, sense of the urgency with which this project must go forward in order for people to have, you know, some kind of, um, any kind of economic development. Um, and of course, if this strips people of their agency and it's completely essentialized um, and there's no co context for the production of active forms of impoverishment in Chad, right? Rather than just poverty as something that just happens. No, poverty is something that is actively cultivated through economic and political relations. Um, and so um, another um, way in which the consortium posited this pipeline as a, you know, a pipeline more attuned to the needs of local communities was through their um, uh, co commissioning of key scientists, including social scientists, to act as mediators with uh, local communities. And, um, and so one of the instances of this, which I talk about um, in, a, you know, which I've written about in a couple of articles was the case of Dr. Ellen Brown um, in Southern Chad, who, um, who worked closely with Exxon um, to, kind of ease the transition for communities um, during the construction phase of the pipeline. And um, so she would go in um, and, and speak with um, local leaders and she helped to identify um, the locations of sacred forests or sacred trees, which were to be destroyed um, during the, the construction, you know, along the pipelines right away. And um, she um, was an anthropologist and spoke multiple of the local languages in this region, in the Doba region in Chad. Um, and um, her was able to kind of use, draw upon her anthropological expertise to 
um, engage in animal sacrifices, um, uh, you know, under the name of, of Exxon and, and Chevron in order to sanctify the passage of the pipeline. Um, so those are a couple of examples of the many different ways in which the consortium um, strategically um, drew upon an idea, a centralized idea of the local. So it idealizes that place into something that it isn't really. Um, and we're looking at it through a different lens, a lens that they focused rather than the people who live there. Yes, and it's, it's very strategic as well. Um, James Wolfenson, um, who was at the time um, the president of the World Bank, um, made you know, a series of declarations to respond to the criticism from um, the nonprofit organizations um, to say, I, you know, he said something like, I don't have the direct quote right here, but um, I have a thousand Africans working at the bank and they all unanimously support the Chad Cameroon oil pipeline. We don't need the Berkeley mafia to come in and to tell us what's good for Chad. Um, and so they were able to, you know, make this claim that not only were they positioned better to help local people, um, but that the, those who were critical of the pipeline were these, quote, Berkeley mafia, that they were, that this was externally driven. Um, and so, you know, the, the government of Chad also um, assisted um, in some of these strategic claims by doing things like um, creating shell nonprofit organizations, which also claimed to support the, the pipeline project. Um, there was a big ceremony in uh, New York that the World Bank had to announce the, the, the pipeline and they flew in um, a troupe of African dancers to again endorse this pipeline. No recognition with the fact that the dancers were from Senegal, not from Cameroon or Chad, but again, just to hold them up, you know, kind of very superficially and largely inaccurately um, to say, yes, this is going forward um, with, you know, the best interests of local people um, in mind. And that there, nothing could have been farther from the truth. What was interesting as well, that you wrote that um, it was quite patently in the end of failure, but the people in the audience, I think this was a, a, term, a presentation by Roger Leeds, the director of the Center for International Business and Public Policy. The vast majority of people in the audience would have still continued with projects of a similar type, even after having found out that this one is a failure. Yeah, I think that's the power of, you know, what Nicholas Jackson and I in, in this article where we introduce this notion of local washing to describe this phenomenon, um, that local washing, there's this circular logic built into it, where intervention like this extractive intervention almost begets further intervention on the basis of how local washing um, is conducted. And so it's because 
you know, fundamentally local washing, we're arguing that this kind of anguished local is at the center of local washing. And therefore the more and the more that um, the consortium and that other hegemonic actors um, hear about and feed into this imagined geography of um, kind of static poverty, the more urgent, greater and ever more precise interventions seem. And so it's the failure is recognized even by, you know, um, uh, the World Bank themselves, which withdrew from the project in 2008, days after the country of Chad had repaid its project loans. Um, and, you know, essentially kind of washed their hands of the project. They said, you know, they, they displaced blame for the failures by saying, we are withdrawing from the project because the government of Chad, Idris Deby's government, um, failed to um, implement the poverty reduction mechanisms as they had been agreed upon. Um, the problem with that is that was the exact argument that the NGO um, collective, you know, those the 250 NGOs who were so critical of the project in the 1990s said, this is what's going to happen. And the, the former president of Chad, Idris Deby, he took the $4.3 million signing bonus and he spent it on arms. And that was done in, you know, 1999. And so then the World Bank waited until the project loans were paid back in order to withdraw. And then to say, we with, we've withdrawn because, Chad, you know, the government of Chad is not sufficiently responsible or accountable to, again, their local community that the World Bank is trying to almost serve as, as the protector um, for the local. And so there's also this almost relentless optimism then within kind of um, some of these corporate and financial uh, circles that the, the example from Roger Leeds that you're referring to, where it's not the project that's the problem, there's an implementation issue. And so we just need to further refine the implementation. It's rather depressing, really. <laughs> hey, before I finish, you dangled witchcraft at us at the start of that, um, <laughs> that little bit of conversation, and we haven't returned to it, apart from me talking a little bit about Zanzibar. How did that influence the work at a local level? Just talk us through the little, I thought it was really interesting. Thanks, John. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of that. I'm not sure how I got lost in that answer. Um, but I think this example, I would love to follow up with you on the example of um, teaching witchcraft in Zanzibar. That sounds fascinating. Um, so witchcraft is probably one of the most difficult um, themes that I have written about. And like many um, scholars who work on witchcraft, um, I found myself working on witchcraft. I did not set out to do that. Um, so I, I um, have 
been for nearly a decade now um, working with two communities, Kribi and Nangaiboku in Cameroon. Both of these are communities situated um, alongside the Chad Cameroon oil pipeline. And so I'm a political geographer. I'm a decolonial political geographer. I'm interested in um, power. I'm interested in how people understand power. And people. I'm interested in how people talk about the potentials for resistance and social change. And all of these interests led me to witchcraft in Kribi and Nangaiboku, um, because I found that when, when people were addressing the um, employees of the consortium and talking about their actions, they would use the language of witchcraft to describe um, and, and to characterize. Um, so, you know, for example, they, there was this kind of disconnect between um, people's understandings of, um, you know, the decision-making um, by the consortium and then action on the ground. Um, and yet, because witchcraft necessarily is something that is practiced kind of off stage in the shadows um, in Cameroon, people would say then the consortium, they're, you know, they're like sorcerers, um, they're witches, that we see them coming in and out of the bush, you know, and sometimes in, in kind of dangerous and remote areas that, um, that community members themselves might not enter into um, and, and then coming out and then, you know, what they have in the end is, is this pipeline, which, um, you know, would sometimes people would say would make funny noises, um, would, would heat up there um, because along the pipeline right of way, in Nangaiboku, pe people continued to cultivate um, on the top of um, uh, this, this uh, subterranean um, oil pipeline, crude oil pipeline. In Kribi, people did not. Um, but so I thought, okay, there's some potential here for the ways in which people are critiquing the actions, these invisible actions of powerful people uh, through the language of, of witchcraft. And yet they were not mobilizing it in any action. And I found myself confronting this um, kind of paradox where actually the way that um, witchcraft is practiced um, in these regions in Cameroon is that witchcraft action are, is directed internally within the community. Um, and so because of the, um, the oil pipelines destruction of uh, people's crops, the way that families were reimbursed was through the head of the household. And that sometimes created suspicion between, for example, fathers and sons or between brothers around how much money so-and-so received for the destruction of their um, crops because land is um, held within families. So there was a disconnect between the ways in which the consortium reimbursed people as if they were individuals and not 
kind of, you know, family members. And so um, the, there was a circulation of a lot of rumors around um, how much so-and-so had been reimbursed. And, um, and so the, the actual stories of how witchcraft was practiced and implemented was against family members. And so there were cases of um, family violence, you know, so-and-so had poisoned so-and-so and, um, you know, actual murders in Nangaiboku. So there's this kind of epistemological potential for witchcraft to identify and to critique um, forms of, you know, what we might call slow violence, which necessarily happen outside of the, our visible or public purview. And yet the ways in which um, witchcraft is practiced meant that families and communities were further fractured um, because of these compensation mechanisms as I've described. I think there's a whole uh, podcast here <laughs> in witchcraft. That would be a fascinating follow-up. I'd like to finish on a positive. So I'd like to just ask you what sorts of messages you think teachers should take away from what we've been saying and from your work and things they can implement in the classroom. Um, I think I would say to, uh, you know, stay with the trouble and to, yes, recognize the enormity and the challenges of the, of implementing an anti-racist pedagogy or to think about um, a decolonial geography um, within their classrooms, but to not be overwhelmed and intimidated, um, but that there really are so many committed teachers um, who are who you know share their motivation and are are like-minded. So I think I would say you know just stay with the trouble. Oh, that's a fascinating ending. Uh, that, that's just spot on. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed that, Amber. It's been wonderful talking to you today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, John. 